You know, when uh, babies are born, one of the first things that people do is they begin to look, they begin to look for family resemblances. Isn't that true? They see the little one and they go, oh, isn't he or she so cute? They have their mother's eyes. They, they have their siblings' hair. They have their father's chin and on and on they go. I have to confess that I don't often see all those things, <laughs> but I will, t- I will take it on faith. Uh, that those who are more observant than I uh, can can accurately predict such things, but uh, I, why you know why do we do that? Why why do we try to make those observations and connections? I think part of it has to do with just trying to to look into the future, as it were, and and try to discern what will this child look like when he or she grows up, when they become an adult. I mean, they're just a little bundle, right? But they're going to become a full-fledged adult. What are they going to look like? What, what's going to characterize them? And so we speculate on these kinds of things. Well, you know, with the mystery of DNA, it is inevitable that every child will bear certain likenesses to their biological parents. It's just a reality of how it all works. But what's really, really telling is not the physical similarities, but the immaterial characteristics that develop in the child as they grow and mature. Because, you see, it is these characteristics that reflect their parentage as well. And in many ways, it is the immaterial characteristics of this young life that are far more significant than the physical similarities. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We're returning again to the Sermon on the Mount and particular verses 43 to 48. In the text before us this morning, Jesus is going to address an issue of family resemblance that is unavoidable for all those who call God their father. It is a resemblance that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And although it is not fully formed in any of us at this point, it is nevertheless the destiny and the trajectory of the lives of those who are true children of God. This family resemblance is not physical, but it is observable. It is not natural, but supernatural. It is not optional, but essential. This family resemblance is not even remotely achievable in our own strength, but only incrementally as we yield ourselves to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit of God. The resemblance that I am talking about this morning is love. It is love. God is a loving God. And he demonstrated that love most clearly for all to see by sending his own son in the likeness of humanity. That he might live among us and that he might die on behalf of us. In this is love. 
For God so loved the world, the Scripture says, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What makes this act of love so amazing is that it occurred when we were the most unlovable. Paul spells it out this way in Romans chapter 5 and beginning in verse 7. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love. This morning, from Matthew 5, we're going to examine the sixth and final difference. The sixth and final difference between external righteousness, the external righteousness of the Pharisees, and the true inner righteousness of those who are citizens of Messiah's kingdom. And we must try to come to grips with the impossible requirement of of love, the impossible requirement of love. For the sake of convenience this morning, I've created a very simple one-word outline for this section, verses 43 to 48. If you're jotting things down, I will give them to you very quickly here. One word, here we go. First word, corruption. Corruption. Second word, correction. Third word, contrast. Fourth word, Conclusion, corruption, correction, contrast and conclusion. It's a very simple outline, but I think it will hold our thoughts together as we proceed through what Jesus has to say in this very, very challenging section. Let's take a look at the first one, corruption in verse 43. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Again, Every time we, we look at this particular section of, of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to keep in mind the contrast that is going on. That there is a group of Pharisees off to the side, and Jesus is continually pointing to them and, and saying to the people, you have heard that it was said, or you have been taught. This is, this is your religion. This is, this is your culture. This is the way you've been brought up. This is the way you have been trained to think but i say to you and then jesus will contrast the the perverted understanding of the scriptures of the old testament under the judaism of his day with the true intent and understanding of the old testament jesus is not bringing to the people anything new he is not giving them a new law he is merely revealing to them the true intent of the Old Testament law that has become encrusted through the centuries by the teaching of the religious leaders of Israel. So here we go. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor is a citation, a direct citation of the Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Where Moses writes there, you shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, 
But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. It is a true and and correct understanding that the Pharisees were teaching. You shall love your neighbor. That is true. The problem is what they have appended on to the back of it and hate your enemy. That's where the problem lies. There is no text in the Old Testament anywhere that says, hate your enemy. In fact, just the opposite. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, the Word of God specifically teaches those Old Testament believers that they are to help their enemies in the time of need. Moses writes again, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of of one who hates you lying helplessly under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. You shall love your enemy. You shall love your enemy in a very practical way. You shall come to his aid when he is in a time of need. It is this this practical command for love that, in fact, Jesus is going to, to bring back to the surface in these verses here of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to talk about a very practical kind of love for those who are our enemies. And in this, we will be challenged. Evidently, what was happening in that day was that, that over time, the command to, to specifically love your neighbor was assumed to imply the inverse. And that is that the one who was not your neighbor, we were to hate. Love your neighbor, inversely or conversely, hate anyone who is not your neighbor. And that, by the way, becomes very easy to do when those people that are outside of our circles are, are seen as foreign, they are seen as despised, they are seen as threatening to us. It's difficult to hate an individual as an individual. It's far easier when we lump them into groups, into categories, into classes of people. And then with a wave of the hand, we write them all off. The heart of the question really is, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You'll remember that a a lawyer raised that question with Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Who is my neighbor? To which Jesus replied with the, the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The Good Samaritan, a despised member of a people group. Who is my neighbor? Anyone in need. Anyone in need. But for most people, the the term neighbor was a restrictive kind of thought. It left all the non-Israelites outside of the command to love. From that vantage point, it's really just a very short step to hate. And so... In Jesus' day, that's exactly what had been added to an understanding of this commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy. Now, by the way, this had become so common 
that it was reported by the Roman historians Tacitus and Juvenal, they both inferred from the behavior of the Jews that they had observed that that hatred of non-Jews was an essential part of the Jewish religion. Did you get that? The secular historians, in observing the, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, they had come to the conclusion that to hate your non, to hate non-Jews, to hate those that are outside of the community of Israel, was an essential part of what it meant to be a Jew. How perverted things had become. How convoluted had people's thinking become. How sinful their hard attitudes were. How far they had strayed from the truth. But lest we sit here in our comfort and just sort of poke our long bony fingers at them and say, how could they miss the obvious? What about us? What about us? Can we not begin to fall into this same sort of trap? Those that are outside, those that are foreign, those that are threatening to us. Even our evangelism can become tainted with a lack of love. We see those who are without Christ as an enemy. An enemy to be avoided, an enemy to be conquered. We see evangelism as a debate to be won. Even in the process of sharing our faith. It becomes all about winning the argument. We feel our passions begin to ignite. The tone of our voice elevates. Uh, the pleasant look on our face evaporates. And yet, they're people made in the image of God. Without the Savior. Just like we were once. And yet now we see them not as a fellow human being. We begin to see them as an enemy. Love your neighbor. But don't hate your enemy. This is the corruption that had encrusted Pharisaical Judaism in the first century. To this, Jesus brings his correction in verses 44 and 45. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a direct contrast or correction to the prevailing teaching of the time. It's a commandment here, by the way. It's a grammatically, it's a present active imperative. It just means by that an imperative means it's a command and it's in the present active, which means it's an ongoing command. It's something that we'd be doing constantly, habitually, and that is to love our enemies. To love them. And to pray for them. Not once in a while, but something that is to characterize our lives. The only way that will characterize our lives is if we have a major change of heart attitude. Specifically, Jesus is saying that we are to love our enemies in a very practical way. Notice that. Verse 44, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. It is a practical love that that shows itself in prayer. We pray for them. And as Jesus will 
elaborate here in verse 45, it has, a, it has a practical sense in which we provide for them as well, physically, tangibly. Pray for them, provide for them. Very practical requirement of love. Again, this is nothing new. This is not a new teaching. This is the heart of God. It has always been the heart of God. When the nation was taken into the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C., the Babylonians were a very brutal people. It was not a, a simple matter of, of just come, them coming along and saying, okay, guys, I think it would be best if, if you and your families relocate to Babylon. You know, your time here in, in, uh, in Israel and Jerusalem, it's kind of come to an end. Uh, we're going to tear the city apart and burn everything, and we think it would be a good idea for you to get out of here. After an 18-month siege, in which the people of the city resorted to cannibalism, the city gates were finally breached. In came the hordes of the Babylonian army. By the way, they didn't enjoy bivouacking for 18 months outside of the city walls. When they finally broke in, there was bloodlust in their eyes. They ravaged the city. The scriptures tell us they tore open the bellies of the pregnant women. They dashed the children's heads against the rocks. They killed the men, old men and boys. They swept up a few of the remnant, chained them together naked and drove them like cattle to Babylon. They raised the city, destroyed its temple. And yet, through the prophet Jeremiah, God speaks to His people. And He says something most amazing in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 7. It's kind of tucked away in there. But God says to them this. He says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. You get that? Pray for the city of Babylon. Pray for its welfare. Pray for its prosperity. The ones who have brutalized you. Not for its overthrow, not for its downfall, for its prosperity. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, who is the enemy we are to love? What Jesus is speaking about here, verse 44. It's a quote here from a commentator, and I think he, he's right on here. He says, and I quote, Our enemy in this context is not merely an individual with whom we are having a personal conflict. Or a citizen of another country with whom we are at war. The enemy is the one who persecutes the Christian disciple as an expression of their hatred for the Christian's faith and his God. Close quote. 
kind of takes us back to earlier in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, where Jesus says there, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's people who hate us because of our faith commitment to the living God. These are the ones that we are to love and that we are to pray for. Now, loving our enemies is not a statement of sentimentality, nor does it mean that we are to allow sin and injustice to go unchallenged. Loving is not simply being nice to people and ignoring error, allowing falsehood to prevail. That is not love. Sometimes loving requires a very strong confrontation, a strong controversy. So we speak for the truth. There are those times. Matthew chapter 23 Where Jesus has an incredible confrontation with the Pharisees is an illustration. That sometimes truth has to be fought for. But we are to love. Why? Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, sometimes people confuse what Jesus is saying here, and they, and they teach that loving our enemies is what makes us become sons of God. He is not teaching that. He is not teaching redemption through love. In fact, what he's actually saying here, he assumes they are sons of, of God because he says that you will be sons of your Father who is in heaven. There is an assumption already they are sons. The verb that is translated here in the New American Standard, that you may be sons, conveys the idea that you may show yourself to be sons. That you may show yourself. So that you may show yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. NASB in the margin gives you that alternate understanding. I don't know why they didn't put it into the text, which they had. Chapter 10, verse 16, check it on your own, gives you the same basic idea. What Jesus is saying here, in other words, is is that love for our enemies is a proper outworking of the family resemblance. A proper outworking of the family resemblance, the relationship that already exists between God as our Father and we as His children. It is a demonstration, when we love, of the legitimacy of our parentage. Look at that cute little baby. He looks just like his father. Look at that guy, love. He is just like his father. Just like his father. For his father, verse 45, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, Jesus says. 
The reference here to, to sun in, and rain is in, is in reality a, a reference to the elements that are necessary to grow food to sustain life. You have to have sun and you have to have rain. And in this part of the world, the sun wasn't so much a problem, but the rain was definitely an issue. So God sends His sun, He sends His rain, and by virtue of these things, He He enables the crops to grow and the crops provide food and it takes care of the needs, Jesus says, of the good and the evil, the righteous and the unrighteous. Notice, by the way, that Jesus says that it's his son. For he causes, verse 45 in the middle, his son to rise on the evil and the good. God is the one who who causes the sun to rise every day. It is not some sort of naturalistic thing that just that happens. You know, the, the, the idea that God is, a, is a, a watchmaker who builds the watch and winds it up and sets it aside and doesn't attend to it anymore. No, God is actively involved in the sun coming up each and every day and in the rain falling when it does. And what that means is that God is actively involved in a very practical way of causing food to be available to those who are His enemies. He blesses them with a demonstration of kindness, goodness, mercy, and love. Do you ever think about how easy it would be to to do evangelism if Christians like walked around and their life was absolutely perfect? Nothing ever went wrong. And for the rest of the world, their lives were a disaster. Do you ever think that kind of a thought? You think, well, you know, why, wouldn't, God, why didn't you do that? It would be so easy to just tell people, all you need to do is follow Jesus and your life will be perfect. You'll be prosperous. You'll be wealthy. You'll be healthy. You'll have at least three cars in your garage. You'll have children that obey you. You'll live a long life. You won't be subject to disease or infirmity. Doesn't that sound like that would really be a successful way to get people to follow God? Am I the only one who thinks that way? So why doesn't God do that? In fact, what he says is, you want to follow after me, you need to deny your life and take up your cross. You need to die to the things of this world. You think your life is bad now? After you start following Jesus, it's going to get more difficult. Because life doesn't terminate here. It doesn't end here. Eternal life goes on. God wants those who will love Him and follow Him because He has first loved them through Christ. And as he, they walk with Him through the adversities of life and they see His faithfulness, their love will grow and grow. God doesn't want what my kids used to call candy friends when they were younger and in school. You know what a candy friend is? That's when in your lunch, your brown bag lunch, you know, you bring something good to eat, maybe some candy. It's amazing how many friends you have as long as mom puts something good in the lunch bag, right? As soon as the candy is gone, so are the friends. God doesn't want candy friends. God is a loving God. Even on His enemies, 
He pours out that love in very practical ways. Corruption. Correction. Third word, contrast. Verses 46 and 47. Here it's interesting. Jesus calls upon his disciples to practice in these verses a righteousness that is at a higher level than the righteousness of of tax collectors and pagans. For if you love those who love you, verse 46, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. If you love those who who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do that, he says. Now, you need to know something about tax collectors of the first century. The way Rome collected taxes is that they would hold, essentially, a lottery. And then they would sell, from that lottery, tax franchises. You could buy a tax franchise for a certain part of the empire. And that tax franchise basically said this, is is that you would guarantee Rome a certain dollar amount for the year. And you would bid. So the one who guaranteed Rome the highest dollar amount for the year would win the franchise. And then you would be given the full authority and backing of the Roman government to go out and collect your taxes. You made your return on investment by collecting more than you had to give to Rome. The better you were at collecting taxes, the more profit you made. In Israel, the the tax collectors were apostate Jews. Because of their occupation, they were hated by their countrymen. They were forbidden access to the life of the nation. They were cut off. But Jesus says that even these hated people love their own. Even the tax collectors love each other. They love their children. He says, if you don't do anything more than that, what reward do you have? What kind of reward is he talking about? He's talking about the reward. Rewards come not in this life, but in the life to come. It's come in the life to come. So so what he is saying here is, is that the future reward that comes when Messiah's kingdom comes. If you live like only a tax collector, and if you love like only tax collectors love, then you aren't living as a citizen of the world to come, the kingdom to come. And there'll be no reward for you. You'll get it all in this life. You need to, you need to live and love at a higher level than tax collectors. Why? Because you believe in the coming kingdom. You're a, you're a citizen of the coming kingdom. Your reward will come there. If you greet only your brothers, verse 47, what more are you doing than others? By the way, the, that verb there is the, it's from the same verb that's used over in verse 20 for a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you greet only your brothers... 
then in what way are you surpassing what others do? Even Gentiles do this. Now, we've lost the idea of a greeting in our day, right? Greetings in our day are more just like a social convention. Yeah, come on, hi, how are you doing? Whatever, fine, how are you doing? Fine, all right, we got that over. Let's talk about what we want to talk about. But that was not true in the first century. The greeting in the first century involved a a wish for the other person's well-being and prosperity. That's sort of built into that word shalom, peace. It's a a wish for for God's divine favor to be upon that person by which they would know the peace of God. Grace and peace is a prayer wish for those things to be true in that person's life. So the thrust of what Jesus is saying here is is that as His children, bearing the family resemblance of our Heavenly Father, we need to be living at a level that that is above that of ordinary people. Don't even the Gentiles, they they wish the best for each other. That's not enough. We need to draw our standard not by comparing ourselves to everybody else, but we need to draw our standard by comparing ourselves to God. We need to be like God. See, that strips away all the self-illusion that, you know, I'm doing okay in this area. I'm a pretty loving guy. It's deadly for a child of God. We need to look into the mirror of the Word. Let that probe our hearts. Let that reveal the realities of what's in there. And what we find is that we don't love like God loves. Not even close. That takes us into the fourth and final word conclusion. Therefore, You see the word therefore, you ask yourself, what is it therefore? Very good. It's a a word of conclusion. It's a word of summary. It speaks of that which has gone before. Ties it all up for you. Puts Puts a bow on it. Puts it in a box. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The beginning of this section of the sermon on verse, in verse 20, turn back there. Jesus said, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's one bookmark. You come to the other bookmark here in verse 48, and it says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What kind of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? The perfections of God. The perfections of God. This is the beginning and the end of this particular part of the sermon. It is, a, it is a closure statement that speaks of the kind of righteousness that is essential to enter into Messiah's kingdom. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the most righteous people of your day, you will not enter the kingdom. Well, then what level do I need? You need God's perfection. That ought to strip it away for all of us. By the way, this lets us know that Jesus is not, in this section of the sermon, substituting one set of rules for another. 
one list of do's and don'ts for another. The Sermon on the Mount is not about a do's and don'ts. If I just do this and this and don't do this and don't do that, then I'm good. Suited for the kingdom. No. It's exactly what the Pharisees thought. The standard is perfection. We're not to deceive ourselves into thinking that we can live a life acceptable before God. The reality of the matter is we need the grace of God. The standard is perfection. We need His supernatural grace. And ultimately, we need the death of the King on our behalf who lived the life acceptable to God, the perfect life as our substitute. We need the Gospel. cannot achieve these things on our own. In this life, we will never love entirely as we should. Never. That doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean we don't strive. It means we cling to Christ for we fall short. By the way, this is not some new idea that Jesus is inserting here. This is in complete accord with God's earlier word to His people in Leviticus chapter 19. The same chapter where he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In verse 2 of Leviticus 19, he says there to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. You shall be holy. It was designed there to strip away any self-confidence that they might have and to thrust them upon the grace of God. To look for the coming one. It has always been that way. It is the gospel that saves and nothing else. And as we live in accordance with the gospel that saves us, our lives incrementally, ever so slowly, but inexorably over time, begin to take on the characteristics of our Father. We begin to love. Just a little bit the way God loves. Beloved, we've seen that the the love Jesus calls upon us to have for our enemies is not an emotion, but an action, right? We're to pray for them, verse 44. We're to do them good, verse 45. We're to wish them well, verse 47. In this we reveal our family resemblance. By the way, to the Jews, the tax collectors and the Gentiles were the last people on earth that they would desire to see prosper. Absolute last groups on earth that they would want to see prosper. They were the enemies of God's people. I said, I, I, I need to think about this some more. I need to pray about this some more. I, I need to even look at my own heart on this. This would be a hard thing to do. Love my enemies. Practical way. For the glory of the gospel. Beloved, it, w- it would take a massive work of the Spirit of God among our, our brothers and sisters in our, in our own hearts. Let's just start there. In our own hearts. To love like that. 
It's far easier. Push people away, categorize them, lump them into a group. Works in us to draw out the family resemblance. Pray to God that He would work in my heart. Will you pray as well? Let me pray. Our Father, this uh, entire section of the Sermon on the Mount has been so challenging. All six areas that Jesus has exposed the hardness of our own hearts. He closes now with this command to love and not just a general command to love, but a specific command to love those who are most unlovable from our point of view. Those, not that we just merely dislike, but those that that have an intense hatred of us and our way of life. Our Father, if we take the time to think seriously about that, we are undone. We recognize that no good thing dwells in us. There there is not within us that kind of love, that, that ability to love. Our Father, indeed, so very often we settle for the love of the world, the, the love that a Gentile would show to another Gentile, a tax collector to another tax collector. A love that we would have within the body here among friends and those that are safe. Believe the same things we do. Hold to the same values we hold. And yet there's nothing supernatural about that love at all. It requires no work of your spirit in our lives at all. It requires no dependence upon the gospel at all. And thus it does not demonstrate a a transformed life at all. It is merely a, a horizontal human affection. We call out to you, O God, that your Spirit would work in us. It would cause your Word to penetrate, to reveal the ugliness, the hatred, the prejudice, the animosities. And that we would repent and turn from them. But Lord, we know that it will not be easy and it will not be simple and it will not happen in all one moment in time. But it will be a continual fight of faith. Refine us, O God. It is our heart's desire. In Jesus' name, amen.